Welcome to this week's Hold My Drink podcast, where we navigate our political and cultural divides with a chaser of civility. We invite you to grab your favorite beverage and join us as we explore our differences and build bridges across our divisions. Welcome to this week's Hold My Drink podcast with my co-host, David Bernstein. Today, we have Elizabeth Weiss with us. Elizabeth, it's good to see you here. We're looking forward to having a conversation with you, a lot to talk about. Before we do, I know that you're in an earlier time zone and we are recording on a Monday. I don't know if you brought a drink to this table, but do you have anything in your cup? Um, unfortunately, I only have water. <laughs> That's completely acceptable. <laughs> I'm feeling a little bit, I, I, I'm doing something new, David, and it is a Monday. I am doing a cucumber mojito. Oh, very nice. Mm-hmm. I like so that. I'll tell you how that goes. What about you? Anything in your cup? Yeah, I have a, um, oh, you don't see that very well. I have, <laughs> I have a, a shot of rum in my Diet Coke. In your Diet uh, Coke. I, yeah, so it's going to, you know, it's going to be good. That's better. Uh, Elizabeth, sometimes he comes to the table with um, his McDonald's Diet Coke, and we're always like. <laughs> classy, very classy. <laughs> That's what it's all about, right? I mean, mm-hmm. <laughs> so Elizabeth, um, I, you know, I think just the first question for you is just a little introduction of yourself. We know that you are a professor at San Jose and you are an anthropologist, and you've recently uh, come up against the system, if you will. And so why don't we just start with who you are and what you're doing right now, and then David and I'll jump in and, and pepper with you with a ton of more questions. Sounds good to me. So I'm Professor Elizabeth Weiss. I'm a physical anthropologist. I study skeletal remains. And in the uh, last couple of years, um, I've kind of been um, fighting a cancel culture um, campaign against my work um, and specifically against my work um, that includes writing about the importance of preservation of the skeletal remains. So I have basically two two types of work I do in the sense. One is literally the study of skeletal remains and you know, it might be as simple as looking at a bump on the head and trying to explain that, or it might be you know more demographic type studies. But um, and then I have what I consider um, you know my other line of writings, which include um, my writings on uh, repatriation and how I feel that um, I think that skeletal collections are too important to be lost to arguments of creation myths um, put forth by um, Native American tribes and those who support them. Um, And so I've written about repatriation and reburial laws since 2004, definitely. Um, And in 2020, my book, Repatriation and Erasing the Past, was published by the University of uh, Florida Press. And my co-author, James W. Springer, um, is a, a retired attorney. And so he, he wrote all the difficult legal parts. And I wrote all the fun parts about um, how you study skeletal remains and what you can learn from them. Um, 
after the publication of this book, there was a uh, campaign to try to get it banned or at least removed from libraries and open access availability. Um, this led to a letter um, to my publisher, which um, I think something like 900 people signed um, to try to argue that my book should be banned. Um, and that kind of led to a cascading effect of um, different waves of the cancel campaign. Um, one of them was um, I gave a talk at the Society for American Archaeology, and um, it was about um, not using creation myths to make repatriation claims. And um, that talk was um, called Hate Speech. Um, the activists tried to get it deplatformed. Um, it did play during the um, one play of it, the first initial playing, but they did remove it from the, um, from the uh, platform, the Society for American Archaeology platform. Um, and just the other day, I got a letter from the Society for American Archaeologists um, Association that was sent out to all the members about a task force that they had created because of the Weiss Springer affair, um, where they're trying to figure out how to keep people like me off of their program, um, including wow. uh, what limits of free speech that they should um, engage in. Um, so that was another aspect of it. Another factor was um, my university um, had um, taken issue with a photo that I posted on Twitter. Um, this was not, uh, this photo with me holding a skull is not very different from the many photos that they actually even asked me to post for, uh, um, including on uh, Provost's promotional magazine ones. Um, but, um, their reaction to this photo um, ended up including lock, literally locking me out of the curation facility where the skeletal remains are. And, um, and um, po posting a whole new set of protocols for access, including protocols that I would say are, are sexist, such as um, menstruating women are not allowed to hold or handle skeletal remains. Mm and you must wear proper attire, whatever that means, and that usually is aimed at women. Um, I'm suing the university for retaliatory action, I am, and I'm with Pacific Legal Foundation um, who are working on it with me, um, mainly as a free speech issue. I don't have any problems with people disagreeing with me. Um, I have worked with people who are for repatriation, that's, you know, this is a debate to be had and how, you know, how old the remains should be or how tight the link should be to a modern tribe is a debate to be had. Um, but it appears that a lot of the repatriation activists um, don't want a debate and they rather engage in a cancel um, culture campaign, um, which what is what you happening. Yeah. Can you explain what repatriation is? I, I, I listened to you, by the way, on Michael Shermer. I was unbelievably moved by what you've gone through and, and your story and, you know, thought it sort of takes it to a new level. So explain what that is. So repatriation is the, um, the I would split it into two things, to laws and an ideology. 
the laws are like the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act and a California version of it called CalNAGPRA. And these are laws that require federally funded institutions um, or government funded institutions to look at what skeletal collections they have in their in the, and artifact collections they have in their facilities and determine whether there's any link to modern people from the past people. And if there are to give the skeletal remains and artifacts to the modern tribes. These links can be as, um, as strong as you know, genetic links, right? And literally someone who is you know, great, great, great grandson, for example, but they can be as nebulous as it's our oral tradition and our creation myths that we've been here from the dawn of time. And therefore, any skeleton found on this land should be linked to our tribe. So it's a huge range. And over the years, since the passing of these laws, the requirement for um, affiliation or for a link has become um, more broadly defined, right? So the link it can be weaker and weaker. And so what happens with repatriation is that this remains, the collections, are given to a modern tribe and those tribes have the choice to either curate them, themselves, uh, request for curation or for reburial. Um, and most of the time they will engage in reburial. And so this tribe that, uh, that you're dealing with, with the skull, insists that it has specific ritual requirements that prevent a menstruating woman from being taken a picture with that skull? Um, it's a little bit, it's a little bit um, kind of uh, blurred lines, so to speak, in the sense that there are multiple tribes who um, are in consultation with the, um, the NAGPRA and cure, uh, coordinator and the uh, tribal liaison. Who, are, who work for the university. I don't know which tribe is claiming that this discrimination is part of their culture. Um, the tribe where the, the um, that I, with the collection that I work with is, the collection I work with is called the Ryan Mound. And the most likely descendants, although there's clear evidence that um, the tribe changed over the collection um, is not just one people. Um, it spans 2000 years and there definitely looked like there was invasions in that uh, area. Um, but the most likely descendants, at least for the later part of the collections are the Mawekma Ohlone. And prior to this cancel culture campaign, they always said that they were for research. They never mentioned anything about menstruating women or appropriate attire. So. It makes me question when this, when these rituals became important. Um, is it a different tribe who's making this request? And if so, then why would that be important for this collection? And if it's not, why was it, why was it never mentioned beforehand? So I, I think that one of the problems is that a lot of the uh, cultural traditions that are claimed 
are not written down. Um, of course, prehistory is not written down. So we don't know what the past people really thought. Um, and therefore, it gives a lot of leeway to just literally use these kind of rules to discriminate against people. There, I've got so many deeper questions for you, but I, but I, a more superficial question. In your realm of work, when did this really become an issue, this, this repatriation, this activism around it? I mean, is there, can you, can you put a timeline on when it became, I mean, I'm sure that we've always talked about whose bones are what, you know, from the end of time, but where it became something that uh, bordered on cancellation. When did you notice that? I think it's been quite a while. Uh, the federal law, NAGPRA, passed in 1990. Um, so one of the reasons why we published the book in 2020 was because it was the 30th year anniversary. Okay. Um, but I think initially um, there was hopes that remains that were not clearly affiliated to modern tribes would be preserved and could be continued to study. Then about 10 years ago, um, maybe, maybe 12 years ago, um, the, um, the definition of for what is affiliated and not um, loosened or was tried to loosen um, to just geographical location as opposed to um, a, a more strict um, definition. Um, and um, I think that it wasn't really, there had always been perhaps um, kind of a, if you're not for repatriation, there were always activists who were, who might attack you. And when I first wrote about repatriation back in like 2002 to 2004, um, I would get some nasty emails, um, but it was minor. And there was still a strong contingent of vocal anthropologists and archaeologists who re recognized that this was that repatriation and reburial was a problem for the science. Um, I don't think that it became as really vitriolic and as a cancel culture campaign until the last maybe five years, maybe even more recent. But I think it's definitely taken an uptick recently. Um, certain other aspects, I, you know, I said that it, you can think of repatriation as the laws and the ideology. And the ideology of repatriation is basically a postmodern ideology that argues that, you know, in addition to the actual act of giving back collections, it argues that the science should be decolonized, that who's telling the story um, is more important than if the story is correct. And I think this is actually a fairly recent aspect uh, or a fairly recent vocal aspect of the repatriation issue. So for example, um, you know, saying that, you know, people who are not indigenous shouldn't even be speaking about the stories or shouldn't try to tell the story of the past, I think is more recent. Mm. So what would a decolonized story of a skull be like compared to just a plain old colonized version of a skull? <laughs> I think a decolonized um, story of the skull might include um, trying to argue that this individual was perhaps a shaman with no evidence of it. 
um, or that um, all, all ancestors were valued or um, um, that, you know, erasing information that is unflattering, like evidence of violence, um, things like that, that the past peoples were far healthier prior to contact with the Europeans. Um, so pretty much framing the story as, you know, wherever, wherever you can, um, if there were European people involved, things went bad. And wherever you can, um, you know, drawing an image of things were so good beforehand. Right. So I have a conceptual, a larger conceptual question to ask you. Anthropology is the study of human development and societal development, which is fascinating. Yet, it seems to me that it inherently bumps up against this idea that all human differences can be explained by systemic factors in the here and now um, or in the past. And, and I'm wondering how anthropology itself in this ideological environment is not being canceled. How, 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 how is that not inherently problematic in this ideological moment? And are your colleagues, I'm, maybe I'm extending the, are your colleagues feeling this just because of the very nature of the endeavor? Um, I do think that there is an attempt to cancel anthropology in the, um, in the traditional sense of, you know, an objective, um, an attempt for an objective knowledge-based way to understand both culture and human biology, so human evolution. Um, I, I think that what's happened is many anthropologists have taken a different road, and that is to reframe all the questions in, you know, uh, basically a decolonized version or um, looking at it in a way of how can we turn this into social um, justice action. Um, and so they're, they're framing it in different, with different paradigms, so to speak. I'm not against people deciding to do that, but I don't think that people should feel that they have to do that. Um, recently, I was interviewed um, in, um, for American Archaeology magazine, and um, you know, I was the one, the one non-repatriationist interviewed. And one of the things is that a lot of them spoke about, you know, oh, you know, the, you know, our colonialist past, our racist past, and so forth, and trying to say, you know, we have to get away from this as as anthropologists, as opposed to focusing on some of the good aspects of our past. And anthropologists were also key in understanding modern human variation in a way that was not racist, right? So um, some, of them, some of them literally testified at civil rights hearings. <laughs> um, and so, um, but in addition to, you know, how it's being framed, I also think that if somebody just wants to study, you know, the shape of, of arrowheads and how they change through time and how that maybe is a technical question, they should feel free to do that. I don't think every study needs to be defined in ju social justice terms. 
I think that there is a place for just inquiry, scientific inquiry for knowledge sake. And if we lose that, I think that that's a very sad thing to lose. You know, you, you mentioned this, uh, you know, I've heard you speak and I think you even touched on this now, but in some of the bones that you study, there isn't a clear uh, connection necessarily with with a tribe like I mean they could be a hundred years old they could be two thousand years old right so just make sure that I understand what you're saying if the bones are found on a certain land and a certain group of people can claim that land even if it doesn't necessarily if, if you were able to do the study to look at the bones and find out that they were from a thousand years ago that's not even part of the the dialogue is it did I hear you right? Right. So one of the things that happened in about 2010 is that um, the Native Americans Graves Protection and Repatriation Act um, was, there was talk about modifying it. And there's um, basically the modification included saying, you know, if there's a geographical link um, in the sense of there's a modern tribe that lives in that place, any skeletal remains found in that area could be linked to that without any further evidence. So that's one of those aspects where it could, you could make um, you know, the argument that they're just basing it on geography. Right. Now, most of the time, um, even before that was proposed, the tribal connections were, um, were nebulous. And a lot of times they were based on oral traditions. Um, a lot of times they were based on uh, myths. And um, so, you know, you could, there's, there's a difference between like oral histories and oral myths. And so histories are more likely not to contain like um, creation stories, stories of things that could not have happened. Whereas, um, Oral myths, you know, can have all sorts of um, weird things like talking ravens and uh, coyotes on rowboats, you know, um, to make the claim, well, this coyote who is, you know, one of our gods was rowing down the Mississippi and therefore this links us to the Mississippi area, you know, these kinds of things. Um, so I, I think that this is very problematic um, from a scientific perspective. But the other thing is the tribes themselves have changed. Um, I just finished reading Without Reservation, which is about tribes in Connecticut, Native American tribes in Connecticut and how they were manufactured practically. Um, and um, in, his, in literally historic times, so like in the 1980s, um, not even talking about that long ago. Um, and People move around all the time. They have, and they, you know, they will continue to do so. Um, and so, it geography is a poor link. There's um, the skeletal collection that I've spent most of my career studying, um, and I've studied many skeletal collections, but this is the main one, um, the Ryan Mound. It has a span of over two thousand years, and the earliest people definitely look different skeletally than the latest people. Now, some people would argue, you know, well, DNA can resolve this, but with DNA studies, you do not test every skeleton. <laughs> 
And the other thing is there are no tribal markers for DNA. There are tribal markers for population groups like Native Americans. But, you know, the Mwekma Ohlone don't have their own tri tribal DNA marker. Um, so it's a matter of um, degree. One of the thing, you know, one of the most famous skeletons that have been reburied is Kennewick Man, the 8,000 plus year old skeleton found in Kennewick, Washington. And, and it, you know, his discovery led to a huge um, row and um, lawsuit to try to get, uh, to try to prevent repatriation. Um, and the scientists in the end were able to study him great book on the on Kenwick Mann. Uh, I, um, I think one of the editors is Douglas Owsley came out in 2014. And um, basically um, they did DNA studies and they found that he had some genetic similarities to the Colville, Colville tribe, who is one of the tribes that argued for his repatriation and at link. But Kenwick Mann also had you know, genetic similarities to some European groups it was actually most similar to South American Native Americans. Um, so there's a question like, you know, had they tested all of the Native Americans in North America, so all tribes, would Colville still have been the most similar um, of the Native Americans? Because, uh, and I'm saying North Native Americans, because there were very few tested. And what about those South American Native Americans? Why was he so similar to them? Many questions still arose, but um, basically the DNA evidence was used to rebury Kenwick Man because there was any link between one of the tribes who tried to claim him and the genetics. So I think that it, it's far more nuanced than just, it's, it's not the Maury Povich show with the paternity <laughs> test, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, so let me ask you, I want to go back to you being barred from being able to even enter that area. What is the university really defending this char, this, this idea that it, ha, that it, it cannot allow men straining women in? Isn't that, isn't that a, isn't that sexist on its face? Isn't it like, wouldn't that violate the law or, or does somehow um, these tribal claims, do they supersede anti-discrimination law? I'm just trying to understand legally where the, where they even, why, why some legal advisor didn't whisper in the ear of the president of the university and say, this is absurd. She has every right to examine this. You can't prevent her from coming in because she's a woman. Um, you know, it's quite, it's, it's quite amazing that it hasn't been challenged. And the menstru menstruating taboo is actually fairly widespread in archeology. span It's in field schools, um, UC Berkeley has cooperated with certain tribes in field schools and they've, it, they've literally required females who are menstruating not to be in the field um, with others. And it's, it goes beyond just access to the skeletal remains and handling the bones. Um, they're not allowed to be near the elders, the tribal elders. So they're little, literally being shunned, isolated. I think this is discriminatory. I think that somebody's going to have to 
pick up, um, you know, the this line and say, you know, this is not okay. Who that will be, I don't know. I don't know if, uh, you know, I've written a lot about it. I think that um, we'll see what happens with my own um, free speech um, case. One of the aspects is that when they decided to lock me out, um, they tried to make it look like, well, we're just following the law. We're just following, following Cal NACRA and we're, re we're tightening up our rules. But this was really right after um, the attack on me about an op-ed I wrote that was critical of these laws and the photo of me with holding the um, skull. So um, even, you know, I think that part of this is, you know, um, discrimination against females in general. And I think part of it is personal. Um, mm -hmm. Are there other women colleagues who are allowed to still go in? Yes, yes. The, the on what tribal... basis then? Excuse me? On what basis can they go in and not you? Um, basically, they're considered the tribal liaison and the NAGRA coordinator are both women. I suspect that they can't go in when they're menstruating. How, mm. they, how they determine that is beyond. <laughs> I, mean, is it, I think that this is like, it's so absurd that this would even be allowed as a question. I just don't even, um, you know, and these, these women, I'm sure, consider themselves feminists. When I asked this question in my um, class, my graduate class, um, you know, the students were like, well, it's no big deal if I can't hold skeletal remains while I'm menstruating. I'm like, but isn't this against women? They're like, well, you know, it's, a, it's an indigenous people's um, right, you know? And I'm not sure it is. <laughs> I, like I say, I think it, there is something, this is something that should be challenged. Mm. Because if it was any other, um, you know, modern religion, I think that we would hear a, a, a huge outcry. Yeah, I mean, maybe, maybe I'm um, uh, very cynical, but um, I think that it's basically, if it's a Western religion, um, then there would be outcry, but if it's not a Western religion, there would be no outcry. Um, you know, I know, um, for example, um, there's quite a few articles on the problem with National Hijab Day, you know, and our university celebrates that. And, um, you know, tomorrow is International Women's Day, um, and this is Women's History Month, and the library, um, the San Jose Library has decided on some of their posters to take the X, the E out of women and replace it with an X. So I think that there is also a, well, if it's Western and maybe what they would consider conservative, it's not okay. But if it's non-Western and what they consider liberal, then it is okay. Hmm. I've got a question on that. So we're talking about these activists and you know, you've already said that this, it's a fairly new phenomenon. Who are most, of, I mean, are most of these activists truly like uh, native people concerned about their history or is it another group of people who are making noise because the time is right? Um, I think it's a, it's a mix. 
I would say a lot of the people who have um, been very critical of me um, have been a mix. Um, I do get some Native Americans who um, have written op-eds against me or have um, uh, tweeted against me and so forth. Um, so, but many of them are what we would maybe consider allies. Um, it's a, a term that is um, that you know is very commonly used. Um, um, and I think that it's also a mix between those who are uh, university uh, professors and students mm -hmm. and, um, and activists who are not in anthropology. Uh, I, so I do think that it's a, quite a wide range. The, some interesting trends I've noticed is that they're mostly women. <laughs> I'm not sure why, but they're mostly women. Um, and um, they, they do veer on the younger side, I would say. I think those are the two trends that I see. Um, but, uh, you know, I would say that the people who've uh, emailed me their support or who, you know, are supportive of me um, are a very diverse group, um, including professors and, and students. Um, but also, I get emails from Native Americans who are against this because they want... They want to know Native American prehistory accurately and not just based on myths. Um, I get emails from laypersons who are just interested in anthropology. So I get a very broad mix of e supportive emails and tweets as well. Mm. Yeah, wow. So is the university trying to get rid of you? I don't know. Um, they probably would love to get rid of me. <laughs> um, I'm, I will not, um, I have no plans on resigning. Um, I have no plans. Are you, are you tenured, right? I'm tenured and I'm full, I'm full professor. Um, so I do not have any plans on resigning. Um, I don't, I really don't know if the, if what they would most like to do is is fire me or just, you know, um, have me slink in the corner and continue to, to do what, um, what I did in the past. Um, it's kind of interesting because I really thought before all this happened that the university was very protective of uh, academic freedom and that my department was as well. Even though I had written about repatriation for many years and been a vocal critic of it, giving talks even at the provost's office level and at the college level, um, nobody, you know, was hostile. I knew some people disagreed with me, but there wasn't, there wasn't a hostility until um, really 2020 um, or, or maybe even 2019. So until my book came out and um, the, the negative attention, I think um, that, um, you know, they knew exactly my perspective. Um, as long as they thought it was good for the public image, they weren't, had no problem with it. And they're like, oh yes, we love diversity of thought. As soon as somebody said, well, this is racist and you know, anti-indigenous, they were like, oh no, we don't like this. So I, mm. I think that they, um, they basically lost their backbone. Um, 
Do, do you have yeah. any sense of what the dynamic is at the university level among the board of trustees, among the president? Do you, do you have any sense that there are specific people that are that have turned on you since this? Or is this just something, is it just a sort of a black box? I know that um, in my department level, I think that they're definitely, they've turned on me. Um, my chair, I would say, um, and I would say at the college level, the dean. Um, the dean hosted my chair at a talk called, um, which they titled, what to do when your tenured colleague is branded a racist. And basically, you know, um, I would say what to do when your tenured colleague is branded as a racist to stick up for their academic freedom and be a supportive colleague. But their answer was basically to try to keep resources away from them and um, try to isolate that person as much as possible, which is what they've been trying to do. Um, I think the provost, um, has been quite um, vocal um, against my position. Um, he wrote a um, letter that he sent out to the whole university against my photo of me holding a, a skull. Um, and um, I think um, the president as well was um, very active in, in the, uh, in the active removal of me uh, of my access to resources, so uh, the you know so I think it does go as high as the president. But I still, I still don't it. get it. I I'm like okay, so you're in this field, anthropology. I'm just you know maybe this is just next level, um, but you're in this field, um, anthropology that studies human development, and you're in a department where there are other people like you who have been trained in the same scientific method that you have. And these are people who are that as soon as there was some controversy around you holding a skull and around your support for repatriation, they immediately folded to that pressure. And I, because, and, and they're willing to do that at the expense of their own scientific area. I'm I just, I just don't understand. I think there's another wrinkle in this, and that is that I'm the only physical anthropologist in the department. So we have two archaeologists and the rest are cultural anthropologists. So um, I think that that is the other wrinkle, that, they, that their resources are not being affected. Um, you know, I don't think that they would- What do you mean their resources? In other words, okay, because they're not worried about having access to skulls. Yes, they're not, they don't do research on skeletal remains. I think they wouldn't classify themselves as scientists, um, at least not the cultural anthropologists. I, um, you know, the skeletal collection that I'm now working on, um, which is not Native American, which is um, from Tunisia, it's a Carthaginian collection. And, um, you know, one of the things that the department wanted to do was take away my ability to take photographs of even non-Native American skeletal collections. And one of the, one of my colleagues asked whether I had permission from these people to take photos. And I'm like, what do you mean permission from these people? These people are dead and have been dead 
for hundreds of years. And she's like, well, beforehand, did you get permission? And I said, did they write anything about photographs in their you know, documents? Like, there wasn't even a thing such as a camera, you know? And it's a, this <laughs> level of absurdity. And I think that um, it's a kind of um, over the top political correctness that is trying to, um, you know, count how to, you know, how can we be as, as correct as possible, count how to uh, indigenous um, rights, even when it has nothing to do with their remains, such as the Carthaginians. Mm. Political overcorrection. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I know that in your book, you mentioned this, Erasing the Past. But you know, for our listeners, what is it that we're actually losing as a result of this? There's so much that I know that I've heard you speak about. I mean, what are we losing when this is the norm? Well, I think we're losing the best, our best ability to understand what happened before written language. Um, so before people started writing. Um, so we're losing our ability, for example, to understand um, disease patterns. Um, what people were literally doing day-to-day -day activities. Um, the level of um, you know, trauma and violence. So in some of these things are, you know, portray the, uh, these people in a complex manner. Um, for example, uh, the Ryan mm. Mound had quite a bit of evidence uh, that violence occurred, including obsidian flakes and, um, and backbones and um, broken noses and so forth. And yet almost all the uh, children's bones had no evidence of violence, suggesting that they protected their children from violent encounters. Um, factors like, um, you know, looking at when care of elderly started. So we really reconstructing what past people's lives were like. Uh, we also lose the ability to learn about skeletal anatomy and bone biology. There's still a lot of stuff we don't know about bone biology that is pretty basic. Um, there's more to learn. Um, one of the things I do is I look at arthritis patterns and I found that, you know, comparing past populations arthritis patterns to modern populations arthritis patterns, different joints are affected. And those different joints are more affected because in the past, arthritis was more likely linked to overuse and sometimes trauma. And in the present, it's more tightly linked with old age and um, lifestyle um, things like obesity, right? So understanding these kind of factors. Um, the other thing is um, we lose ability to use our information about understanding skeletal remains to help present day people. Forensic anthropologists learn on skeletal collections. Um, they learn how to determine cause of death, whether uh, the bones were male or female, the age of the skeleton. Um, even recently, um, I did a study on um, what we call uh, the epiphyseal lines, which indicate whether somebody is still growing or not. So growth plate lines and showed that 
all when somebody stops growing when they're an adult some of these lines can appear in an x-ray for decades later like into your 80s and this shows that when looking at the line is not evidence that the fusion just occurred recently this helps us as forensic anthropologists say, well, then that is not a good age indicator and not erroneously say someone was young when they were not. Um, same thing with sutures on the skull are now not considered good age indicators in part because anthropologists, forensic anthropologists, biological anthropologists figured this out using skeletal remains. Um, so I think that, you know, and we're losing the way to understand the past, but we're also losing collections that help us understand how best to use the skeleton for the present as well. Are any of the physical anthropologists in other universities that you know, are, are they coming out to defend you? Some of them um, have, um, and um, I do have um, people who've been supportive. Um, there's a huge um, culture of fear. Um, I've had people reach out to me, such as state archeologists who work on sites like construction sites when, um, to ensure that if there's some uh, remains or artifacts discovered that they are not just bulldozed, that they are actually removed and preserved. Um, and most of the collections in the US were, were considered, uh, were what we consider salvage collections, collections that were not excavated um, just for um, scientific knowledge, but were excavated because of construction. Many of these uh, archeologists and anthropologists have, um, you know, have reached, who have reached out to me, um, have said that they support me, but are scared to do so because they're worried that they're gonna lose their jobs. So I do think that there's a, a very big culture of fear. And um, you know, I think that that silences people and they might send me an email, they would don't release my name, but they're not writing uh, you know, letters to my university or, or even to the newspapers saying I support her, um, yeah. her work. I'm familiar with that ritual. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. David can speak um, to it. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's pretty much a universal uh, reaction, I think. Yeah, so what, what's next for you? How, you? You have this lawsuit out there. How are, are you gonna continue to fight um, against uh, you know, repatriation? Are you going to um, continue to write op-ed? Are there any, are, is there anything holding you back now because of, your lawsuit or because you're under threat, uh, you know, in, in some ways that, I mean, you're, you have tenure, that's great, but, you know, a university that really wants to fire somebody can still put a lot of pressure on them if they, if they try. What, what, what's your, what, what's your next move? Um, my next move is basically to, you know, keep on keeping on. Um, I am, you know, engaged in looking at that Carthaginian collection. And I do have plans for some research on that. I am attempting to get the x-rays that have been taken of the Native American um, collections. 
Um, unfortunately, um, they are the university um, is claiming that those X-rays also fall under NAGPRA and CalNAGPRA. They do not. Um, and the tribes have said that they want the X-rays so that they can burn them. Um, so I'm. This is a. This is one of my big battles that I'm hoping to get access to those X-rays. Um, Why would they want to burn an X-ray? I'm not sure I understand because it's not like that's an original artifact. What, what's is it that they're scared that you're going to use these wicked Western scientific methods to tell something to the public that they don't want to hear? Is that it? Counter narrative no, in a way? I don't know why. I, I don't know if that's part of their narrative. I think it is because they are against me studying the remains at all. And so mm -hmm. it is personal. I've never, I've, I've taken x-rays of these um, remains before and others and my students have. They've, the uh, Mawek Maloney have never complained about x-rays before. Um, I've never heard of another tribe complaining about x-rays. Um, so I'm not sure what, whether this is just a, re, a straight out retaliation. You know, we know she's against repatriation. She's spoken up against it and we want to get her. And therefore we know she wants the x-rays and we won't give them, <laughs> you know? Um, so it's hard to say, but um, I think that, um, and we'll see where that ends up. I do think that that's an important aspect to fight for. X-rays are very revealing. They can be used to do to look at, of course, um, bone density. They can be used to look at um, what we call Harris lines, which are indicators of somebody, uh, um, if somebody had stress during childhood and stopped growing for a period. Um, so in a sense, they are useful and I would uh, use them for research. Mm -hmm. um, I also plan to continue to write uh, about uh, the problems of repatriation and the, pro the problems of the laws. Um, I'm in the midst of writing some now, uh, some um, articles now. Um, and, you know, I don't think that this, even if skeletal remains become less and less available and more and more are repatriated, um, the battle will not be over for two reasons. One is because new remains may be discovered. And if we can pre prevent repatriation and reburial, maybe new collections will be, will, will be a thing, right? Will arise. But then the other thing is moving goalposts of what, the repatriation ideologists and the activists with this ideology are, will literally ruin anthropology in the study of skeletal remains and of the study of the past. So, you know, today it's skeletal remains, tomorrow it's, the, you know, x-rays, actually today it's x-rays, right? Um, you know, next, do they want literally the numbers from what we've taken or, the, or photographs that have been used at sites? I don't, I don't think that they will be satisfied with just the skeletal collections. And that's another reason to continue the fight. All right. I have to ask one more thing and then Jen, you take it. Yeah, I look. got only one uh, more, you go. Okay. So I wanna make sure I got this correctly because it seems to me so next level absurd that it's hard for me to like, if I'm talking to my friend, okay, on the phone 
And I'm going to say, you know, I talked to this anthropologist and she faced a cancellation campaign because she was photographed with a skull in her hand. OK, now and it's almost funny to say now I'm trying to understand what the president of your university or the dean or somebody else would say why they are. Why they think that you should face consequences for photo, taking a photograph with that. So can you express what their your best representation of their argument is? I think they would um, say that um, they would argue that it's not respectful because of the spirit or the souls of the of these individuals and the indigenous beliefs that these remains should be reburied. Um, there was, Wait, you know, even though you've taken a lot of photographs in the past with skulls, including you know being pictured on various university magazines, it was okay then, but now somehow the goalposts changed, and now you should be shamed uh, out of your field. Yeah, I think that um, I do think that the goalposts have changed, but I also think that you know there are still plenty of photos like this taken every day posted on the internet with no complaints. And I think part of it is that they know that I'm against repatriation, that I'm critical of creation myths, and that I'm not supportive of just accepting all indigenous um, oral traditions or oral uh, myths um, for repatriation. And I'm also critical of what I would consider hypocritical um, thinking, such as it's perfectly fine to um, to discriminate against women when it's an indigenous group, but it's not perfectly fine if it's not an indigenous group, mm -hmm. you know, uh, a Christian group, uh, Western Christian group. Um, so I think that these are the reasons why I'm be facing cancel, cancel culture as opposed to um, somebody else who's holding the skull. There was, uh -huh. you know, there's, you know, issues about whether I, I was doing it in a disrespectful manner. I would, I personally would say that I have a great deal of respect for skeletal collections because I know what they can tell us. And I would never, um, you know, handle them in a way that they could damage them. Um, I would never, um, you know, do something to them that would make it, them not be able to be studied by the next generation. I do have an incredible amount of respect for these, um, these skeletal remains. I do not believe that they hold any souls. I do not believe in spirituality. These are not my beliefs. Um, but I also think that there was a big deal made about, my, about the, um, the language I used on with, along with the tweet along with the photo, which said, you know, so happy to be back with old friends. And they said, oh, you know, this term of friends, she's making a joke of it. And I would say that there's nothing joking about saying friends, even old friends. And when I had tweeted that, I had, my thoughts were, um, one thing is I was happy to be back with the skeletal collection. This was after 17 months of COVID. Um, and um, I had literally, the day before we went to remote, 
I was literally in the collection room um, doing curational duties. So, so I was happy to be back. And I think that anybody who looks at that photo sees a genuine smile. Um, but the other thing is the term friends is something that we use all the time as a matter of admiration and, re and respect. Yes, of course. But I know there are friends of the past, friends of the library, friends of the forest, you know, <laughs> that, that was what I was, that's what I was aiming at, right? So this is, this is my last question for you. And in this quest for diversity, if you will, and what we've already mentioned, we've kind of overcorrected in a way, we've done a disservice almost to our humanity, right? And what you're studying, you've already mentioned like what the benefits of it are. Is there, have you seen in this work kind of a, everything seems either or right now, you know, you're either for repatriation or you're not. Is there kind of a both and thing? Like, like you take that bone and rebury it and I'll take this bone. Like, is that even a part of the discussion? I mean, I don't feel like anything in our world right now is both and everything is either or but i mean is there something there that we could present and say hey like we get this even though it might not even be your bones but whatever you know your yeah. land you know here's a femur i'll take the you know <laughs> ulna i don't i mean i, I know I'm, I'm i know i'm being flipped but um, i think that that for much of the history of repatriation um laws um, there was a lot of give and take. I think that anthropologists felt that this was an important compromise. And therefore, they thought that having, um, you know, laws that would enable repatriation um, to affiliated tribes was an important step. And I think there still are people who believe in that compromise. What broke down the compromise in my mind is the fact that many of the skeletal remains could not be affiliated and this upset people who really wanted to do repatriation and therefore the the their only option was to go for ways to loosen up the requirements for affiliation um, to make it okay when even when there isn't clear links to say, yes, we'll still give you these skeletal remains back. Um, you know, I'm sure that there's a wide range of um, opinions on the repatriation issue. And I always say, you know, I, I know I'm on the one end of the extreme and, you know, in all fairness, um, you know, I feel that way about all skeletal remains, not just Native American skeletal remains. I've done research on European skeletal remains, um, on a, a, you know white American, Black American skeletal remains. So I've done research on non-Native American skeletal remains, um, and so it for me it's not about um, a oh well I don't want to rebury I don't want the uh, reburial of indigenous remains. I just think that the skeleton is so useful. And I think that um, we can learn so much that I do think it's a loss to rebury remains. I think, I think funerals are a loss, you know? Um, yeah, I'm not, I have no plans of being buried. 
I have plans of donating my body to science. My parents are the same way. I realize that this is not everybody's way, but I think that somebody has to take my end of the extreme and I, I decided to take that. I accept that there will be other people on the other end of the extreme. I, would, I respect their ability to argue for that. I would never try to shut them down to silence them. Unfortunately, that's not the case with those who want to silence me. And I think that there's everything in between. Um, you, you know, so it is, it, there are a lot of gray areas. Yeah, thank you. This is fascinating. I admire your courage in pushing forward here. Um, we, need, we need wins here. So I'm so glad you're also taking up legally um, and, and standing up for free speech. Thank you so much for having me on. It's a pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of Hold My Drink. Like or subscribe to the show and check out the show notes to see what each of us is reading. Different news with different views. You can find us at holdmydrinkpodcast.com all major podcast platforms and on YouTube or subscribe on Substack at truthinbetween.substack.com so you never miss an issue. If you want to join our Discord community, drop us a line. And until next week, may your conversations be constructive and your divisions diminished. Cheers. Cheers.